push the record button, and here we go. Well, ladies, I grew up in West Virginia, and as far as I know, when I was in high school, there were no White Castle hamburger places any place in West Virginia. But I used to, I used to hear about them, and you had to go to Ohio to get White Castles. And when I was in high school, one of my friends, Tammy, beautiful girl, cute as a button, was the cheerleader and, and always dated the handsome football players that drove the sports cars. Well, one night after a football game, Tammy and her boyfriend wanted White Castle hamburgers, and they left after the football game and drove all the way to Ohio just to get White Castles. When Tammy got home, she was grounded for life, her mother said. <laughs> and so all those years, I mean, I was just wide-eyed because I was that girl that was... I'm going to obey, at least look like I'm obeying. I don't ever want to get in trouble. And so I thought, wow, to risk, to risk getting grounded for life, White Castle hamburgers must be incredible. So for years I dreamed, what would a White Castle hamburger taste like? What, what would It must just be absolutely delicious, like a party in your mouth, scrumptious, marvelous, wonderful, if it was worth getting the risk of getting grounded for life. So all these years later, I graduate from high school, I graduate from college, I get married, and guess what? The first place Kevin and I lived after we were married was in Ohio. We were in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I would pass White Castle hamburgers. And it, it, it brought back all those memories of Tammy getting grounded and, and, and that lifelong dream of tasting a White Castle hamburger. So sure enough, one week, Sunday after church, I persuaded Kevin, let's go get White Castles after church today. And so I was really excited to walk in there. After all these years of, of anticipation, I went in with my mouth already watering, this expectation for this deliciousness that had built up over all these years of anticipating my first White Castle hamburger. And that day, it was finally going to be satisfied. Only, it didn't satisfy. <laughs> I opened that thing up, and, and it was just a little flat piece of greasy meat. And, it was, and it, was, it was served on something I remember looking like one of those brown and serve rolls that some poor soul that forgot it was potluck Sunday ran by and picked up at the grocery store. They didn't have time to make homemade rolls and brought those to the potluck. Now... My apologies to White Castle, and my apologies to any of you who love White Castles. Maybe, maybe what it really was, they were really just fine. It was just that big buildup of all those years of anticipation that created unrealistic expectations. But I thought about those White Castles this week as I studied the prodigal son, and I, and I just could not help but see some parallels. That prodigal son longed for the far country, and I had longed for White Castles. And when he got there, it didn't deliver any better than my White Castle hamburger did. Sometimes what we think and dream about really isn't so great when you finally get there. The prodigal son, ladies, is one of three parables in Luke 15. All three address something or someone being lost, and they all address the topic of salvation. We're going to look at all three of these today, but I want you to stand with me now in honor of God's word. We're going to read the opening to Luke 15 and the text that covers just those first two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin. I'm reading from Luke 15, beginning in, in verse 1. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman who has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Ladies, thank you for standing in honor of God's word. You may be seated, and would you just pray with me as we begin? Father, thank you for teaching us in parables. Jesus, thank you for coming and walking among us. And because you were president of creation and you know how we were put together, you know that stories resonate. And I pray today that these three parables resonate in our hearts. That they talk about lostness, but in a bigger way they talk about salvation. And the ultimate way they talk about being joyful. So Father... Draw our hearts to heaven today. Let us anticipate that type of joyful celebration and let us be addicted to that kind of joy and that kind of celebrating when we someone who some, when we behold someone who is lost becoming found and finding salvation in you. Thank you for the truth that's found here and let our hearts and our minds be hungry for the message that you have brought for us from Luke 15. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Luke 15 opens by sort of setting the stage for us that Jesus has attracted some unsavory characters. Jesus had this way of hanging out with what the Pharisees kind of grouped in one category, and he called tax collectors and sinners. And that just seemed to be where he would be found, with tax collectors and sinners. These were the dregs of society. These were the worst of the worst as far as the Pharisees were concerned. And, you know, we kind of do the same. We sort of use the word sinners or we use the word sin, and we sort of lump it all in there. And, it, and in a way, it sort of sanitizes sin. We just sort of say, well, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners, and it, it almost kind of excuses it. But when we take the lid off the box and we unpack it and we think about the kinds of people that we're talking about, it's also convicting when we think about uh, who we are. You know, we just say sin, but that includes gossip, and lying, and bitterness, and resentment, and envy, and pride, and jealousy. For the folks here that the Pharisees were pointing the finger to, he was attracting prostitutes and thieves, those that would have been outcast from society. The tax collectors, boy, now they were an interesting group. They were perceived as sellouts. They were one of their own. They were most likely Jews that had sold out and collaborated with the Romans. Because their job was to collect taxes from their fellow men, their fellow countrymen. There was a certain amount of a quota that they had to send to Rome. And whatever they collected over and above was their own salary. So they kind of extorted. They had betrayed their own people. And so 
the Pharisees and, and the Jews had really no love for their fellow Jews who had become tax collectors. The pride-filled Pharisees loved to look down with disdain and judgment on tax collectors and sinners. And they isolated themselves from the likes of tax collectors and sinners. But look at Jesus. These are the folks that he intentionally sought out, that he hung out with. And when the Pharisees saw this, they criticized him, and when, they not, and when he not only hung out with them, and he not only welcomed them to his gatherings, but even chose to accept invitations to eat with them, they were just appalled. They were enraged. They were incensed. And so I hope all of us will consider that we are those sinners that Jesus sought out. We would be placed in that category, the lost that he came to save. It's possible, however, that as we look at this story and, and the others that Jesus unpacked for us, that some of us maybe should also be convicted that sometimes we're guilty of taking on a bit of a judgmental attitude like some of the Pharisees because it was their pride and their judgment that prompted Jesus to share the, this set of three parables that we're calling the lost parables. And so the three that are being highlighted here are the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son uh, for purposes of alliteration. We, it's more familiar as the parable of the prodigal son. So as we studied these three parables the last couple of weeks, I'm sure you noted some similarities, but also some differences in the three of them. All three of them really deal with the topic of salvation and rejoicing, but it's interesting the path that it takes to get there. With the lost sheep and the lost coin, someone was intentional. Someone intentionally engaged to go after, to search out, to seek to find to rescue that what was lost. The shepherd left the 99 and went after the one. The woman was relentless in searching for her lost coin. The shepherd sacrificed his time and even subjected himself to some danger in going out there alone to chase and find that missing sheep. And he also left the 99 trusting they would be okay together. There was some risk involved in what he did. The woman expended precious oil to light a lamp in her frantic search for that missing coin. Most likely, our research tells us that that was part of her wedding necklace. And so all 10 of those stones would be very precious. It would sort of be like us losing our diamond out of our wedding band. And, and I know some of you have that kind of a story of something being lost and found. So the shepherd lost one out of 100. The woman lost one out of 10. But both valued what was lost. And both expended precious time and energy doing that frantic search to find and rescue that which was lost. The sheep was lost because of its own foolish wandering away. The coin was lost because of the carelessness of its owner. And sometimes people end up where they should not be because of their own choices or sometimes because of the choices made by others. The lost son parable, known more as the prodigal son parable, is just a little different. He was lost because of his own selfishness in that regard, similar to the, the sheep that kind of wandered away foolishly. But in this parable, there's a big distinction. The father did not go looking for him. The father waited, released him, and then waited for him to return. And I think that's an interesting contrast to the other two. We're going to spend the bulk of our time today unpacking the parable of the prodigal son. But I think it's worthwhile here at the onset to look at the overarching view of salvation as we consider 
all three of these parables in unison. In the parable of the lost sheep, God, of course, is represented by the shepherd. And, and we see God's sovereignty in going after the lost sheep, seeking to redeem and hunt down and save the lost. And God is represented by the father in the third parable, but here he waits for the son to come back. So in one parable, God goes after the, the one that represents God. In the other, the father representing God waits for the son to return. And so as I, as I ponder that, and I, and I thought about that in relation to salvation, it, it begs us to think through kind of a deep theological question. Is salvation dependent upon God's sovereignty going after us, calling us, choosing us, hunting us down? Or is it man's responsibility to respond as God waits for us to come? Well, ladies, we have hit on one of the greatest theological debates through all time. Great scholars and theologians in every generation, pastors and teachers in our current generation, maybe even Sunday school classes and teachers and church members have thought about and prayed over and talked about and searched the scriptures. They've even argued and debated exactly how are we saved and trying to kind of unravel this mystery of looking at different verses. Is it because God calls? Is it because we answer? Is it God's sovereignty in calling? Or is it man's responsibility in responding? Or is it a beautiful, almost mysterious blending of both? John MacArthur sums up this dilemma or debate very well when he says this. The question goes like this, and this is a quote from uh, John MacArthur. Does God choose sinners to be saved and then provide for their salvation? Or does God provide the way of salvation that sinners must choose for themselves? It's kind of the chicken or the egg kind of dilemma, isn't it, when you kind of wrap, try to wrap your mind around it? God does call us. The hound of heaven chases us down. His love and his grace cannot be ignored. But yet we have that personal responsibility for our choices. We are made in the image of God. It's what distinguishes, distinguishes us from every other element of creation. We have a will and we have a mind. And, and we're going we're gonna to dive deeper into this topic this fall when we launch our study of Romans and we dig into God's righteousness and his standard of perfection, but yet his grace and mercy. So this is kind of a, almost a teaser for our next study, if you will. But for right now, I want to look, I want to give you some verses to examine as we consider both sides of, of this great challenge. There's some verses that talk about God's sovereignty, and then there are some that talk about man's responsibility. And I hope that you'll jot these down and look them up later and write them out. You know how big I am on writing the word. As we write the word, we see things a little deeper uh, that we don't always see when we just read it. Ephesians 1.4, starting off in the God's sovereignty category, says this. And you can just listen. I'm not going to put the, the actual verses on the screen, so you can just listen. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. But yet John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We go back to the other side, John 15.16 you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. But then John 6, 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Second Thessalonians two thirteen, 
But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Acts 16, 30 to 31. This is the jailer. You remember this story when Paul and Silas were in prison and the jailer calls out to them and begs them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. We go back to Romans 9, 16 and 18. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. But yet the very next chapter in Romans, we read this. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And then finally, I'm going to wrap up with Ephesians 2.8 because I feel like this is the verse that sort of straddles both categories. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. We place our faith in him. He draws us by his grace. Ladies, I believe that salvation is both. I believe that it is both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. While it may seem in in some respects like those are contradictory and both could not be simultaneously true, Scripture teaches both. So by faith, I choose to believe both. We see through a glass dimly while we're on this planet, and one day God will make it all clear to us. I love what Tozer says on this topic. Oh, Lord, thou knowest. Aren't we glad we know the one who knows? We don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to earn a seminary degree or learn Greek or Hebrew or or become some professional scholar. We just know that we know him, the one who does, and that is enough. What I do know, what I do know, is that we should not break fellowship over this. Great scholars and theologians have agreed and agreed to disagree. And, and, and they've been unable to resolve this issue through the years. Churches have even split. New denominations and fellowships have formed. Relationships, relationships have even fragmented because of this specific theological debate. I love what Warren Wiersbe says on the subject. You know he's one of my favorite Bible scholars and my go-to always when I'm preparing to teach. Dr. Wiersbe says this, The mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility will never be solved in this life. And I agree with him. God will make that plain to us later. For now, I choose to embrace both by faith. I believe God will call anybody who will answer. And somehow, some way, I believe that every person on this planet has an opportunity to hear God's voice or see evidence that he exists. I say that because 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is not willing that any should perish. And Romans 1.20 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Even those in faraway lands that have never heard the name Jesus can look at creation and know intuitively this couldn't just happen. And without even knowing his name, they can worship the creator and and place their faith in something bigger than themselves, someone bigger than themselves. All three of these parables in Luke 15 address the topic of salvation. But the parable of the prodigal son differs from the other two because the father releases the son. In the first two, 
that we see God represented by the shepherd and by the woman going down, chasing down, seeking out, going to rescue and find that which was lost. But in the parable of the prodigal son, the father who represents God releases the son, lets him go, and then waits for him to return. As with the other parables we've studied, let's look at some of the key elements and the key figures in this particular parable. We've got the father, first of all. The father represents God Almighty. Then there's the younger brother. He's the sinner. We should all be able to identify with that younger brother, the sinner who repents. Then we've got the older brother. He would represent the Pharisees. And then the distant country, that's the sin that calls and beckons us to come, the place that promises and never delivers. And then the robe and the ring and the sandals, we're going to wrap up with looking at what happens when that son returns and look at those elements in a little while. The story opens with that younger brother making a demand of the father, and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. That would one day be his. He's making a demand for what would already one day be his, but he don't want to wait for it. He wants it right now. You know, there's some things about young people that just never seem to change, right? That some things that are just true, we want what we want and we want it now, and that's true for young people and old people. We, we were impatient then and we're impatient now and we want what we want. So he demands his inheritance now. And asking for his inheritance now, do you realize that what he's basically saying to his father is, I just kind of wish you were already dead. I just kind of want my inheritance now. It must have broken the father's heart. He's most likely been dreaming about the far country for some time. Uh, it, it, isn't it human nature to long for what we don't have? To dream of going somewhere else, to, to buy into that proverbial lie that the grass is always greener on the other side. Life will be better if only. You and I play that game. Life would be better if only I could get that job. Or life would be better if only I was married. Or, or life would be better if only I was single. Or uh, if, I know, if only I could take that cruise or buy that couch. Or if only I could fit into that size and that dress again. Uh, why do we leave it in our closet to mock us anyway? Just get rid of it. <laughs> if only I could go there or have that or have what she has or do what she gets to do. You know, we will, we will never be satisfied or never content with what we have or where we are as long as that is our focus on what we don't have. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 gives us this caution. It says, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's godliness with contentment. Have you prayed that the Lord would give you contentment? But then 1 Timothy 6 goes on to say this, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We know that's true. We've seen that to be true. We've seen that unfold in our generation. And then the scripture goes on in verse 10 to say this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, we know money is not a bad thing. In fact, when it's stewarded well, it can be used for very good things. But it's the love of it. It's when it becomes what we cherish. That when it becomes the focus, that's when it creates all sorts of problems, as it surely did for this younger son. The father allowed him to leave. He gave him the inheritance he asked for, allowed him to go, and released him to his own sinful choices. As I was reading through my notes and praying early this morning, it occurred to me, 
it's kind of what God did. It, he, did, he could have removed the tree from the Garden of Eden, right? He created paradise, and he could have just left that one tree out. But he wanted Adam and Eve to choose to obey him. He gave them the choice. And the father could have just said, no, I'm not going to let you leave. I'm not going to give you your inheritance. But he didn't do it. He let him go. He freed him to make his own choice. He didn't force him to stay. Of course, he didn't want him to leave. There's no indication in the scripture of an argument or begging or pleading or trying to talk him out of this poor decision. I imagine that that probably had happened. I imagine that if, if this young man is dreaming of the far country, it's been in his mind and on his tongue and the subject of conversations. And, and maybe the conversations had all been had. And everything that needed to be said had already been said um, already. But the bottom line is the father allowed the son to choose. He allowed the son to leave. And the parallel for us, of course, is that God doesn't force us to obey him. But he wants us to. He, he knows what is best for us. But some lessons just seem to have to be learned the hard way. We mothers know that, don't we? With our children, some of them obey us the first time, and, and they know the peace and contentment that comes to their lives and the lives of the family. And then there's that one that just wants to challenge everything. And they just, everything has to be the hard way with that one, Right? So I used to sometimes as a mama say, we can do it the easy way or we can do it the hard way, but mama's way is going to win. But at some point, they're going to grow up and make their own choices and experience their own consequences. The father in this story loved his son enough to release him and to allow him to make his own choices and to even make his own mistakes. Sometimes the hardest, but yet the greatest gift that we as parents can give to our children is to let them experience the consequences of their own choices. At some point, you have to stop bailing them out. You have to let them, as my mama used to say, you made your bed, you can just lay in it, you know? So the younger son gets what he wants, and not long after, he sets off for that land of his dreams, the land of his hopes, the land of white castles. <laughs> and there he goes. And then the sad outcome is revealed. He squanders it all, all that wealth, all of his inheritance. It's just gone like that. It evaporates very quickly in wild living, and I'm sure wild parties and wild friends. Extravagant, wasteful, excessive are all words that we would come up with to describe the lifestyle that he was indulging in. He spent everything. Nothing was held in reserve. There was no emergency fund. If he was a graduate of Financial Peace University, he certainly forgot everything he learned because he didn't keep an emergency fund to draw on. There's no indication that he tried to find a job or used his funds to start a business. He just spent it. And then disaster hits, and there's a famine. And um, he finds himself in great need and no doubt very, very hungry. And those friends, well, they have gone the way of the money. The money's gone, and then the friends are gone. So now he's in the predicament. His choices are to either starve or find a job. So he hires himself out to what surely must have been the only job that he could find, feeding the pigs. Now for a Jewish boy to stoop to feeding pigs, that would be the ultimate loss in dignity. Pigs were unclean to the Jews, and he's so hungry that he even wants to eat the pods that they are eating. He has hit rock bottom. And then finally... What must surely have been the answer to the prayers of his father at home, who is no doubt praying every day, 
Verse 17 says, he came to his senses. And we all say, hallelujah. It finally occurred to him, my father's hired hands have plenty to eat. And here I am starving to death. I wonder, is there a prodigal in your life that you are praying for? Have you prayed that he or she would come to his senses like this prodigal son did? Have you prayed that God might even remove hedges of protection and let your prodigal hit rock bottom if that's what it takes? Have you prayed that he or she would wake up and realize that they're wallowing around with the pigs when the banquet table that the Lord Jesus Christ offers is available? Have you been courageous enough to pray, God, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, if he has to lose his job or his friends or his health, make him miserable on every side. If it takes a famine, wake him up. Let him finally look up. Let my prodigal come to his senses. I think the father prayed prayers like that before his son came home. He released him. He let him go off to the far country. But I believe he never, ever stopped praying and hoping. And I'm convinced of that because of what we know happened in verse 20. Because in verse 20, we see this, that when the son got up and went to his father, it says that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Can You, you can just feel the joy in, the, in this father's countenance. But you see, he saw him when he was still a long way off. What was the father doing? He was watching. Every day, I believe, he was standing there on the porch looking off in the direction of the far country. He was watching and he was waiting and he was no doubt praying. Oh, the joy that must have overcome him when he saw his son from a long way off, but coming home. Have you been there? Have you prayed and waited and longed for your prodigal to come home? Have you almost given up? Could you be encouraged and spurred on to keep on hoping and praying like this, Father, that one day you too will see your prodigal coming home? The younger son wasn't only remorseful, he didn't just come to regret his choice. He actually repented. He took action. He came home. And there were three declarations that he made as he acknowledged his sin. He said, I have sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hard men. Now he rehearsed his confession. When he was still in the far country, there with the pigs, starving to death, and he came to his senses, his rehearsal for what he was going to say to his daddy when he got back his rehearsal is recorded in verses 18 and 19. These are words of repentance, and, but they were followed up with action. He put, he put feet to those words, and he got himself home. And even as his father is embracing him, he's simultaneously reading and reciting and confessing in verse 21 those words that are recorded in verses 18 and 19 that he had rehearsed before he came home. And, he, and he, he gets part of it out. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you see the humility? Gone is that arrogant, full of himself, give me my inheritance kid that left longing for the far country. He tasted the far country. He got his belly full of the far country. And, and it left him hungry, and literally and figuratively. He got a belly full of it. But if that experience was what it took to, to bring him to repentance, then amen. So be it. He's come home. 
He left an arrogant kid and he came home a humble man. Praise God. He knew that he could come home because his father was so wise. He let him go, he released him, he gave him the money, but kept watching and waiting and praying. It was the kindness and the grace and the mercy and the love of the father that brought his son back home. And ladies, it is God's kindness and grace and mercy and love that draws every sinner to himself. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God's conviction is kindness. He convicts us with his kindness. If you know Jesus as your Savior today, it is because in his kindness, God has called you, convicted you, and you responded to his kind conviction. You repented. And God was there waiting, as he always is, waiting and wanting everyone to come to him by believing faith. In 2 Peter 3, 9, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And when the son repented, look at what happened. Look at the loving welcome provided by the father. He had an answer for each of those statements that the son made. The son said, I have sinned against you. But the the father wiped out that statement because he brought that robe of honor. That robe of honor probably was the father's robe. And it, it denoted acceptance back into the family. The son said, I've sinned against you. But the father says, take my robe. That robe, a sign of honor and acceptance. And the son says, I'm no longer worthy. He acknowledges, I'm no longer worthy even to be called your son. But what does the father do? He puts that ring on his finger. It was most likely a signet ring. They used signet rings in those days to seal. When an envelope would need to be sealed or you needed to sign an official legal document, that was sort of your family crest. And so by giving him the signet ring, he acknowledges authority and connection and and you're part of the family. In placing it on his finger, the father is declaring, you are my son. And then finally... The last declaration was, make me like one of your hired men. And the son is prepared to say it. He had rehearsed what he was going to say with that last declaration. But the father drowns him out. He can't even get the words out because the father is celebrating. He's putting on the robe. He's putting on the ring. And now he brings the sandals. And with the sandals, putting those on his feet, the father declares, oh, you're not a hired hand. You're not a slave. You are my son. Because you see, only children got to wear shoes, got to put on sandals. The hired folks and the slaves all went barefoot. And so the father then calls for a feast. He says, kill the fatted calf. calf. Let's celebrate because he declares, for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he is found. It's time to party. What joy. The son experienced the joy of returning and finding mercy and love and acceptance The father experienced the joy of receiving and no doubt finding his prayers, his many prayers answered. Even friends and neighbors got in on it as they, all the members of the household, everyone got to come and share in the joy. They're all able to rejoice with those who rejoice. And it it tells us that when a sinner repents, even the angels in heaven, the scripture tells us, rejoice. There's great rejoicing. Luke 15 wraps up with joy for almost everybody. Only one is not celebrating. Only one refuses to enjoy the party. 
Only the older brother misses out on the blessing of the joy and the celebration. And you know what keeps him out? His anger and his resentment keeps him out of the party. Luke 15, 28 says that the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out to him. This is that loving, gracious father. He went out to him and he pleaded with him. But there's no joy. There's just judgment and there's resentment. Clearly, this older brother has no love for his father and certainly no love for his younger brother. He's worked all day. He's tired and he needs rest. He's no doubt hungry and he needs food. And he's so close. He's there in the dark, but he can hear what's happening inside. He can probably see the people celebrating. He can hear their voices, all the celebration taking place. But he chooses to stay outside in the dark. He chooses to nurse his resentment and his pride and his jealousy. He chooses to stay tired and hungry and joyless when it's all there and available to him. He's going to miss everything he needs. All the joy and the hope that they're sharing because he refuses to enter in. He's focusing on himself and it's pride that keeps him out. The younger brother was rebellious, but the older brother was prideful. Both were self-centered, but only one repented. The younger brother repented and found joy. He wanted freedom, but then when he went to the far country, all he found was slavery and misery, but he came home and found grace and mercy. From misery to mercy, he found love and acceptance and forgiveness and joy. You know, you and I may never be the prodigal. Many of us have grown up in church. We would be, we're those good church girls. We try to keep the rules and, and do what is expected. But I think the danger for us is that we might have some older brother tendencies. We, we might have a predisposition to become a little prideful and focus on ourselves. And we have to fight that. We have to keep our eyes on our Father. And even as we faithfully work and serve our Lord, we must serve from an attitude of grateful worship. We must do all we do with joy, knowing that we deserve that place with the pigs. But we get instead adopted into the family. We get the robe and the ring and the sandals. We get to identify with Christ. We get to be part of the family. Because our identity is in Christ, we were lost, but we have been found. We were dead, but we have been made alive. The woman of God rejoices that she is alive in Christ. We never, ever must forget that we were that prodigal. We may have been a 5-year-old prodigal or a 25-year-old prodigal or a 45-year-old prodigal. And our place with the pigs may look very different depending upon how old we were or how far we wandered to the far country or how long we stayed there. But we were that rebellious one. Wanting our own way, doing what we want, stiff-arming God's good boundaries, resisting his love. But in his grace and in his mercy, he drew us to himself. He not only forgave us, but welcomed us. He loves us and calls us his own. Let's not let that great joy become old news or stale news. Let's choose to rejoice about our salvation every single day. And let's commit to praying for those that are still wandering, still out there searching for white castles and ending up in black holes, searching for that which will never bring satisfaction or hope. These three parables from Luke 15 are all about lostness, but they call us to consider what we can learn from each character in the story. 
Are we the lost sheep that needs to be found? Have we wandered away foolishly and lost our way? Or, or, or do we know someone who is? Are we the woman who needs to be diligent and search intentionally and maybe pray intentionally for a treasured friend who's lost or wandering? Or are we a mother or a friend or a daughter or a niece or an aunt or neighbor of a, of a prodigal who may be close physically but who has wandered far off spiritually? Is it time for us to step up, enhance, and take our prayer life very seriously? To storm the doors of heaven and beg the hound of heaven, that good shepherd, to use whatever events and circumstances may be necessary to bring that prodigal that we love back home. Maybe you are that prodigal needing to come to the Father. Maybe you've been living a double life and you know in your heart of hearts that you really are that older brother in the story and not the younger brother. Did you notice that the son didn't have to take a bath before he came home? There's no indication that he cleaned up before the father put the robe on him and put on the ring and put on the shoes. The father ran to meet him and, and put all those things on him, and he didn't have to clean up first. Are you ready to come to God just as you are and be welcomed by his warm love and his amazing love and his amazing grace. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this message of salvation in Luke 15. I pray that you challenge all of our hearts to consider who we are in that story. But Father, I want to use my prayer time today to invite the mothers of prodigals, the friends of prodigals, the sisters of prodigals, the daughters of prodigals to pray with me now for that prodigal that she loves and desperately wants to see come to you in saving faith. So, Father, today we pray for those prodigals that are, that are loved and cherished by those of us in this room, but also loved and cherished by you. Some of them are our children. They may be our spouses, our parents, or our friends. But, Father, we just pray that you would make them hungry for the bread of life, thirsty for the living water. Father, that they would find no satisfaction in any food or drink or pleasure that this world offers in a far-off country or any place, that all around the world, <clears throat> that all around them, wherever they go in the world, that it would just feel bleak and dreary wherever they are. And only by looking up would they see just the beauty of your glorious joy and your love calling them. Father, would you just give our prodigals no peace until they bow to you, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And Father, for those of us who are praying, would you give us strength to keep watching and keep waiting and by all means to keep praying, to keep hoping and loving with the anticipation of seeing our prodigals come back to you so that we too can throw that big party and celebrate that our prodigal who was lost has been found and the one who was dead spiritually has come alive. Thank you. Father, for who you are. Thank you that you are simultaneously the hound of heaven who seeks and saves us and comes after us, but you are that waiting, watching Father, letting us make our own choices and come to you. Thank you that you will call all of us who answer. We love you. We declare by faith that you are the great, merciful, loving, amazing God that we serve. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.